Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hey, you heard it from him and not me. We are back with another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Have I mentioned how much I love having a voiceover guy do my little intro there? I love it. Look, we're back. It's episode six. It seems like we just started yesterday. It's already the sixth episode. And look, I was supposed to record this episode tomorrow, episode six, on Thursday with Dr. Mark Thornton. We're going to talk about the economics of the drug war. We're still going to do that interview, but I got an opportunity to interview someone that I've really wanted to have on the show. But he can only do the interview today. So what do you do when an opportunity comes along and you have a guest you really want to talk to? You carpe that DM. You seize the day. And sees it we have. My guest today is the co-founder of the Tennessee Liberty Alliance. He is a columnist whose work can be found at lourockwell.com as well as the Daily Caller. And when he's not busy promoting liberty, he is a professional wrestler and actor. He portrays the character Kane for World Wrestling Entertainment. Glenn Jacobs, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. And I certainly appreciate you taking your time to be here with me. Now, I'm a wrestling fan. I've been a fan of yours in the ring for many years. And I've read a lot of those pro wrestling books where you hear the behind-the-scenes story about you know all sorts of pranks, you know all sorts of wild times. But I never read that much about political debate going on in the back. So, how did you come into this libertarian stuff and your travels throughout the years? Well, when I was a kid, one of my first recollections is my mother talking about how bad intimate domain was. So maybe that's what set me on the path. I don't know. I always say that I don't like politics when people ask me, oh, you're interested in politics, right? Like, no, I hate politics. The problem is that politicians take an interest in me. So you know, that's <laughs> exactly. Under, they don't leave yeah, us alone. So Right. It plagues us all. But through my formative years in, in high school and then college, I bounced back and forth. I thought I was a conservative. I thought I was a liberal at various times. But I always thought that taxes were ridiculous. I mean, the government either wastes the money or it seems to give people that don't deserve my money, my money, you know, they give my <laughs> money to people that don't deserve it as much as I do because they don't work for it. And that includes not only, of course, social welfare, but corporate welfare as well. That's actually a much bigger problem than social welfare is. But on the other hand, I think that if you're not doing anything to hurt anybody else, you should be left alone to live your life as you want to live it. So I don't agree with social conservatives that think that government should be a vehicle for imposing their social views and what they would like to, how they would like to see people live their lives on other, other folks. Eventually, a friend of mine introduced me to libertarianism. He said, you sound like a libertarian. I had no idea what that meant. So I did a little research. He told me I should go to the Libertarian Party website, which I did. And I was like, yeah, I agree with these guys on most of this stuff. And then I started doing some research and some reading, and thank goodness for the internet. And uh, I just sort of went down the rabbit hole over the years. At one point, I discovered Austrian economics, which I think is very important. And I determined after studying some Austrian economics that, wow, this is all about economics. Everything that we do is really economic in nature. So you can't separate economic freedom from personal freedom because they're the same thing. What I mean by that is Austrian economics looks at human action and uh, how people satisfy their wants and needs and desires in a world of scarce resources. Well, there's one component of every action that we have, which is a scarce resource, and that makes it unique, and that's time. Everything we do takes time. When we're deciding I'm going to do this or that, how I'm going to spend 
my time. So as you can see, this idea that we can somehow compartmentalize liberty into two two separate things, two separate components is ridiculous because they're all sort of part of the same whole. So that's where I came to where I read lots of stuff over the years and been influenced by a lot of people, both on the left and the right before I was like, wait a second, this whole left right thing is really, I, I think, fallacious, you know, and it's, it's liberty versus authoritarianism. Now, on your little rabbit hole journey, as you described it, which I think is how it kind of is for a lot of us, we something just kind of sparks something in us, we start reading, and that, you know, reading one thing, maybe you read a Ron Paul column, that leads you to a whole book about economics or something like that. So what specifically were the main influences on you? I don't really remember, actually. I don't know if I necessarily had anything that made a light bulb go off, or if it was just that I read a bunch of stuff, and as you say, one thing would lead to another. One great book is Healing Our World in an Age of Aggression by Dr. Mary Ruart, which for people coming sort of from the left into libertarianism, I think that's a book they should read. I'm a big fan of Harry Brown's stuff, Why Government Doesn't Work, and The Great Libertarian Offer, as well as, of course, Dr. Paul's stuff. Uh, And then F.A. Hayek with The Road to Serfdom. And, of course, my favorite is Murray Rothbard. He has a number of works. Of course, he was an economist of the Austrian persuasion, but he also wrote just about everything in general. I think that if the world wasn't filled with socialists and statists, he would probably be considered one of the smartest men that lived in the 20th century and one of, should be considered one of the most important. But two books that he wrote were The, the Ethics of Liberty and For New Liberty, and they were very formative on my thinking. Yeah, and we're big fans of Murray Rothbard as well. Over at our site, we do our weekly feature, Mondays with Murray. Every Monday, we just kind of put out, take some kind of current event or some subject and kind of try to highlight one of his views on it through either a video or a passage from an old article or something like that. So he's kind of somebody who's just put it all out there and says things in such a way that it really kind of sucks you in and just makes so much sense, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. One book that everybody should read that's interested in economics at all is What Has Government Done to Our Money, which is only about 90 pages long. If you read that book, you will know more about monetary theory and monetary policy and economics, frankly, than pretty much 99% of the people out there. And what's great about Murray is he does put things in a way that the layman can understand, despite the fact that he, of course, could have written like an economist and written above everybody's head. He doesn't do that. He actually wanted people to understand what he he was talking about. So, yeah, I'm I'm one of those people. I think if you read something by Rothbard, you pretty much can't go wrong. Now, Glenn, are you trying to say that our public school system isn't really giving people the full skinny or the full story about kind of how the monetary system works and how the government works and that kind of thing? Yeah, I I would say that. (laughs) Or I'm not putting words in your mouth, right? (laughs) No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't take any economics courses in college, and I thank my lucky stars. I mean, I read about all this stuff now. I look at the Keynesian mainstream economic paradigm, and I realize how false it is and how fallacious it is. And it's really just to perpetuate a pseudoscience, which is what Keynesianism really is. But it's the same thing, unfortunately, with many of our social institutions and the way that the government works. I mean, when I was in school and we were taught that we all get together and we form something greater than ourselves and then we can go out and change the world, but that's not really the way it works. And I was never taught in school that government is there for politicians to punish their enemies and reward their friends and that special interests are really what it's all about. And and it's a way Unfortunately, the government is a way of making the rich richer and the poor poorer. 
that's the opposite of what we were all taught, right? And also the idea that government is there, so evil corporations and the free market can't ruin our lives. And then when you look at really happens, no, the government is in collusion with the evil corporations. By that, I mean the big business, the corporatism. And it's not a free market system at all. In fact, they do everything that they can to make sure that the free market doesn't work because a lot of those big corporations would be out of business tomorrow because they can't compete with the flexible, young, new startup companies that come into the market. That's, you know, one of the big myths of libertarianism that you point out there that, you know, that libertarians would just let the corporations run wild because, you know, we don't want the government to have all these regulations. And people, it's an important point for us to make that, you know, actually, the government's what's keeping these guys propped up. The government is what creates all these ginormous regulatory schemes that only the giant corporations can work around. I mean, do you think anybody could start maybe a, a mom and pop health insurance company nowadays? I mean, it's absolutely impossible to break into the most highly regulated industries. Sure. And if you look at it, why is it that the price of health care goes through the roof, but then the price of things like computers and cell phones keeps on going down. And also surgeries which are not required, like LASIK surgery and plastic surgery, the price of those fall as well. And the reason is because the government is very involved in the healthcare industry. Over 50% of the dollars that are spent in healthcare are spent by the government. On the other hand, they're not nearly as involved in computers, cell phones, and optional surgeries. And right there, you can see that the market actually does work. And when the market works, prices fall. When the government gets involved, we have shortages and prices go up. Another good book that everybody should read is called The Big Ripoff by Tim Carney. And in it, he shows exactly that, how big corporations actually use the government. And the government uses big corporations in sort of an incestuous relationship to protect their territory. And then, of course, the politicians get kickbacks from it. And it works for them. Them, but it doesn't work for us. And it is not the free market at work. It's crony capitalism at work, which might be the worst system of all. You mentioned Austrian economics. Now, for people that are just tuning in to you, maybe they're just a wrestling fan, maybe they got here from placetobenation.com and are just tuning in for that, and now they're hearing some of these terms for the first time. And they also heard the term Keynesian economics, which is not even a term we hear when we're first learning things. We're just told, this is economics, this is what it is. But that's really Keynesianism that we're you know taught if we do take economics courses, which I unfortunately did take a few of, <laughs> and have to have slowly, gradually, I would say unbrainwashed myself, but I can't really say I learned all that much, because to me, it just seemed like a bunch of hooey, and you know, eventually I was able to learn that, oh, okay, maybe it actually was. It seemed that way for a reason. But can you kind of describe a little more why Austrian economics, why you feel it's important, and how that is different from, quote-unquote, mainstream economics or Keynesian economics? Sure. First of all, let's dispel some of the mystery about the terminology that we're using. Austrian economics is called Austrian economics simply because the early practitioners were from Austria. The Austrian government or the country of Austria doesn't have anything else to do with Austrian economics. Keynesian economics is named after John Maynard Keynes, who was the preeminent, unfortunately, economist of the 20th century. And Keynesian economics is sort of a meld between somewhat free market economics, but socialism uh, or communism. And it's really sort of socialism light. And the Keynesians believe that the government, uh, that the economy works like a car. And you should use monetary policy to either speed the car up or slow the car down. That's what Keynes thought. Now, the neo-Keynesians, who are the people you're going to read writing for whatever magazine or, or publication, 
they don't believe in the slowing the car down part. All they believe is speeding the car up. So Keynes thought that you could always have sort of a quasi-boom and that if the economy started to turn down, all you needed to do was pump more money into the economy. Then Keynes also thought as the economy would start to boom, that you would pull money back out of the economy. And you never wanted to get to an enormous boom, which would end up in a bust, but you tried to, you wanted to walk a thin line. On the other hand, the Austrians are completely free market. And the big difference is the Austrians see the economy as an ecosystem with billions of individual components that all have free will. So it's like the ocean, except much more complex, in that you have all these different organisms that are interacting with one another. And there's no way that we can predict what's going to happen. And the best that we can do is just to sort of allow it to happen, because if we get in there and we start messing with it, we're really going to screw everything up. The Austrians believe that money should be left to the market, just like every other commodity is, that there should be no central planning at all, and that includes money, which will bring us to a third economic school, which is the monetarist school, which Milton Friedman was probably the most well-known monetarist. And monetarists are very good, in my opinion, on most issues, with the exception of they still think that the government should be in control of money. And they're big backers of the Federal Reserve System, which is America's central bank. And uh, they just often don't think that the Fed is doing the right things, whereas the Austrians would argue that there shouldn't be a Fed. The market is capable of producing everything else that we need, food, shoes, cars, all that good stuff, it should be in charge of money too. Do you think the monetarists, like you mentioned Milton Friedman, do you think they kind of cause a little problem in a way for libertarians? Because I know a lot of people that they hear Milton Friedman, they think free markets, they think he's a libertarian, and so they just assume that whatever he says kind of fits into that paradigm. And it kind of kind of pegs us in a way where we got to say, no, well, you know, Milton Friedman, those guys might be right on a lot of things. They understand, you know, if you want to hear Milton Friedman explaining why minimum wage is bad, it's great. He's excellent. But when it comes to the money, there's this one thing they just don't think should be handled by the free market. Does that cause us a problem at all? I mean, I, obviously it does a little bit because we have to have this conversation. Yes, it does. It surely does. Friedman, like I said, Friedman was great. And he used his column, I believe it was in Newsweek, to throw out some ideas that thank goodness that he did that. But nevertheless, he did have some flaws and his major flaw was that he thought that the Fed was a necessary institution that it just often wasn't being run correctly. And also, unfortunately, Friedman's the guy that brought us the withholding tax during World War II. And I think this is very unfortunate because what it does is that's where your employer withholds a certain amount of each paycheck for income tax. And if it were up to me, that would be one of the things, if I were a president, that I would immediately try to get rid of would be withholding tax. I would want people to actually write a check to the IRS to have the money in their hands and then have to turn it over. Because I don't think that most people actually realize probably how much money they spent in taxes a year, especially in the income tax. And unfortunately, it's gotten to the point now where we get income tax refunds and people celebrate and don't think, hey, that was my money to begin with and it never should have been taken away from me. So Friedman was great in some areas, but yeah, that does cause us problems. Yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more on the tax withholding. That is just the most insidious thing because we're at a point where, you know, 
people might look at their pay stub, and I mean, I look at mine, and I get just furious when I look at how much is taken out. A lot of people just see the money show up in their bank account, especially everything's electronic deposit nowadays. You're thrilled that you got a paycheck. Hey, I got money. It's Friday. You don't even think about that maybe 30 40% that just skimmed right off the top. And then, like you said, it's a party. It's a thrill when you get a little, you know, a few crumbs back. You know, go put a down payment on a car or buy a new refrigerator. Yeah, it's a, it's our gift to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> From the exactly. government. You're getting money, and that's another thing that Friedman talked about was the the reverse income tax, where everybody would get a baseline check from the government. They had a formula to figure up whatever it would take to get the essentials to live at the poverty level, you know, food and stuff, and you would get that money before you would pay income taxes. And in my mind, what that does is that's just another way of making people more dependent on the federal government because it's it's a check no matter what. That's one of the problems that I have with the fair tax. Uh, a lot of folks have talked about replacing the income tax with a national retail sales tax called the fair tax. And one of the problems with it is that it has something called a prebate in which you would get a check from the federal government depending on the size of your family. And again, look at what's happened with Social Security. Look at what's happened with the other. I hate to call Social Security an entitlement because people paid into the system, so they should get the money. But nevertheless, that's become a third rail now. We can't talk. Social Security, we all know it's bankrupt, right? But we can't talk about reforming it at all because if you do, people are dependent on those checks. Rightfully so. They get very angry about it. And it would happen the same thing that happened with the prebate. So unfortunately, Friedman did have some, in my opinion, some flaws with his thinking. Now, you've written a few articles recently that I just want to bring up here. I think you make a few important points. One of them was over at LewRockwell.com. It is a rebuttal to an article that was posted over at Bloomberg, and the title of that article, Libertarians Are the New Communists. <laughs> now, anybody that's a libertarian and sees that headline is just going to you know, think how ridiculous this is, and it is. But their, their main point in their article over Bloomberg by Nick Hanauer and Eric Liu was that you know, libertarianism can't work just like communism couldn't work. Communism... You know, I don't think they understood why communism couldn't work. They just kind of they did it in a very superficial way. But they said communism didn't work. We saw the collapse of the Soviet Union. Hey, you libertarians, you're just the same thing. You're, you're these ideologues. You think you can have this utopian, magical world when really it's just like communism. It's just going to lead to chaos. So can you talk about that a little bit and go into why that premise is incorrect? Sure, and you're exactly right. They just glossed over why the USSR actually collapsed, and the reason it collapsed was because communism is unsustainable as an economic system. Since there are no prices, Ludwig von Mises pointed this out right after the Russian Revolution in an article titled, just give me a second here, um, Economic Calculation of the Communist Com- there we go. Socialist Commonwealth. Thank you. And we'll, we'll, we'll try to link to some of these, these books and the articles that Glenn's okay. referring to uh, over on our site. But the problem with communism is the fact that since there are no prices, there's no way to determine how to allocate resources. Okay, so you can have the government saying, well, we need more boxcars or we need more washing machines or we need more silverware or we need more cars or we need more tools. They don't know because there's no prices to determine where the steel, the component, the resources needed to make all these things should be going. So you see these massive economic misallocations and distortions. And that's the real reason that the Soviet Union collapsed. They are correct, the authors of that article, in that both libertarianism and communism are ideologies. But their supposition that because they are, quote-unquote, pure ideologies, 
that both would collapse is absolutely ridiculous. And what they're saying is, okay, we should take a third road between the two because it won't collapse because obviously the two will collapse. Well, the problem with that is that third road never remains going towards freedom. The third road always ends up going towards big government. The compromise only seems to go in one direction. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And actually, libertarian societies have not collapsed. Even anarchic societies have not collapsed. They've been taken over from the outside. But there are occurrences in history or examples in history of societies that basically didn't have governments. And uh, Iceland and Ireland, and they survived for hundreds of years. And they eventually were conquered from outside forces. But the idea that because something is an ideology means it's unworkable is ridiculous. Let me offer you something. If you have good versus evil, they're both ideologies, right? But which one should we go towards? We should be going towards the good, which in a way is absence of evil, correct? I mean, if, if we look at, if we look at switching the definitions around a little bit. Well, I don't and know. That, Some people might say that's just not realistic, Glenn. We gotta, you know, we gotta have a little <laughs> bit of evil, a little I, bit of good. We need the right mix. <laughs> I guess. I mean, and basically that's what they'd be saying. You know, okay, you know, a little bit of murder and a little bit of theft is okay. No, it's not. <laughs> right. And I think to, to some real libertarians that really see, you know, what the government does by forcibly extracting wealth from us and, and t- withholding that tax. And if we don't withhold it, well, we're going to be in, in trouble. We're right. going to have some guns pointed at us. You know? And that is the foundation of libertarian philosophy, is the idea that the government should be held to the same moral standard as the individual. And just because a bunch of us get together and say, hey, we're the government now doesn't mean we can suddenly start running around and acting in ways which are completely contrary to how people would act as individuals. In other words, no, we can't steal from people and we can't murder people. It's pretty much that simple. And somehow it all gets lost. If, if enough of us get together and say that it's okay to do those things, the moral compass that leads us as individuals gets completely thrown out the window. You also recently wrote an article over at the Daily Caller regarding the debt ceiling and how the debt ceiling, this whole thing is, we see it every, you know, year or two. It's just another episode in this political theater we see where the Democrats are struggling against the Republicans and it's this great mighty battle and, and all the fate of humanity is at stake. But uh, you, you kind of go into this a little deeper and discuss how the debt ceiling was really designed. It was never designed to rein in government spending, as, as they try to kind of claim. Quite the opposite. It was really designed to give the government more flexibility to borrow. Can you discuss that a little bit? And that's exactly what it did. Congress basically signed over their authority or their responsibility to look at each individual piece of spending and borrowing, and they just gave that to the Treasury and said, okay, we just want a report of the aggregate per year of how much money you need to borrow. So what what it did, what the debt ceiling actually did, was allow government to become much larger because Congress is no longer debating each individual thing. Gridlock is a wonderful thing, you know, because people think of things, oh, gridlock's terrible, the government doesn't do anything. Look at what the government does. It wastes money <laughs> and it takes our freedoms. So for libertarians, gridlock is wonderful, and the debt ceiling actually eliminated a lot of that gridlock, and unfortunately, it allowed government to run much more smoothly, which is a bad bad thing from our perspective. 
And the funny thing is, I mean, they, they tell us the government shut down because, you know, we have this debt problem and we have this political issue and, you know, we're shut down. So they, they close national parks, they close World War II memorials, they close the kind of things people like. It's almost like they just kind of want to get to us. In the meantime, you know, I read last week there was an attack in Somalia that backed up by U.S. Yeah. forces. The, clearly the government's not really shut down. It's just really the parts that we like, the very few yeah. parts that people might actually enjoy. Yeah, I think only 17 to 20% of the government is shut down. There's a really great scene in the movie V for Vendetta where High Chancellor Adam Sutler is up on the big Titan Tron thing, the big you know <laughs> Megatron that they have, and he tells his advisors that he wants to remind the people of why they need us. And that's exactly what the federal government is doing. Wouldn't it be great if they would have just left all the monuments open and said, oh, we're not going to have anything to do with it, instead of spending money to actually shut them down? Right. It's and not like the monuments disappeared. Right. They're there. Right. <laughs> They're just not and letting what, people go. What would have happened? Probably volunteer organizations would have said, hell, we'll take care of it. And they probably would have done it a lot cheaper than the federal government does. And then people would have started realizing, wait a second, we actually don't need those guys, right? And I'm actually in D.C. right now. Ooh, I'm sorry. And, yeah, I know. <laughs> but everybody's everybody's freaking out over this thing up here because, of course, they all depend on the federal government for a paycheck. But where I live in Tennessee, no one cares. Other than you can't go to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, which does stink. But other than that, no one really cares. And it just goes to show you that the government is not as important as folks may think it is. One of the things that really drives me nuts is this idea that the country and the government are the same thing. And they're not. Okay. America is a great country, I think, despite the government, not because of the government. But they're two separate things. Right. And you mentioned that national park. And that just goes back to the problem with the federal government controlling all this land. Because if the federal government didn't decide to shut down that park, that land would still be there. That park would still be there. It could be managed in many other more reasonable ways. But the fact that this is all controlled from this one tiny little place that you're in right now, you know, that's why when they have a little crisis or a made-up crisis in this case, it affects everybody all across the country. Sure. And again, looking at the credit markets, and the credit markets would seize up if the U.S. government defaulted. Why is it that one institution or organization should have that sort of power to basically cause the world economy to collapse? That That's a problem. I mean, one of the things that libertarians talk about is decentralization. And decentralization is a wonderful thing because when people compete and when political entities compete, you get better results. If we had competing political entities, if we had a smaller federal government and I'm not big into political power being vested anywhere, but if the states had a little more political power and the federal government had a lot less political power, if you didn't like the state that you were in, if you thought the taxes were too high, if you didn't like what they were doing with whatever, whatever public policy, you could move to another state. You could move to where you felt more free. And what's going to happen is eventually freedom is great. And eventually more and more people are going to start moving. What's going to happen to the state that you're moving from? They're going to get their act together. They're going to lower taxes. They're going to lower regulations and because they're losing tax base. So, you know, the idea that we have just this one enormous entity that controls everything and does so in a monopolistic fashion, that's probably the worst thing of all, right? That they just control and they say, and it's all top down. And we really, really have very little voice in what happens. 
Now, if you have a few more minutes, I'd just like to run through a few questions from a few readers, if that's all right. Sure. Right, now, first of all, a couple guys over from LionsLiberty.com from the website I am editor-in-chief of, John Odermatt. Now, this has been a rumor that's gone around for a while. So first of all, before I get to his specific question, can you just maybe address one more time? There's a little bit of confusion. There were some rumors you might possibly consider running for office next year against Lamar Alexander. Can you just put, you know, definitively to rest? How- yeah, I am not doing that. Okay. And so that, that leads me to John's question was, will you ever run for office? Is that something you'll consider in the future? And, you know, do you view politics as a way that, you know, to advance the message of liberty by providing a platform to educate other people? Or do you think we can even advance liberty, you know, through making new laws or repealing new laws or what have you? I think that electoral politics offers a great platform. I don't know that you are going to be able to advance liberty by repealing laws and writing legislation. I would like to think that you can. Certainly, in the federal government, there are some people that are trying to do so. Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Thomas Massey, Justin Amash, Mike Lee, folks like that are doing their best, but they keep on running into roadblocks. I think that at the state and local levels, you can have some success, and I think that's where people need to concentrate more is trying to get good people in at those levels of government to try to change things. But as far as electoral politics being effective, I don't see that. I, I see the bully pulpit and the platform that it offers as being something that you can utilize to advance the message. But let's face it, this is not going to be something that is going to come from the top down. Okay. America's trip down this road has taken a long time, and it's going to take quite a while to turn back, and that's unfortunate. But it's not going to come from politicians. It's going to come from the people out there, and they, they can certainly pressure politicians, and I'd like to see that. But unfortunately, there are so many special interests that are eating at the trough now that it's very hard for anyone with any sort of principles to win an election, it can be done, but there are few and far between. And I don't think that you will ever going to be able to get a majority, at least in the federal government. And we saw what happens when someone just comes out and kind of puts the full liberty message out there as Ron Paul did. And, and he did tremendous things in terms of waking people up to a lot of these ideas, but he was just slammed from every side. And now there are all these shenanigans at caucuses, the media just smeared him. So we, we know what happens when people really put it out there. So it's either, seems like you either got to do that and just hope to, to capture enough hearts and minds, or you got to, and, and hope you're not shut out too much, or you got to try to start compromising your words. And you know, that just muddles the message. So it kind of seems like a no win in many ways. Yeah, it does. You know, Ted Cruz certainly isn't Ron Paul, but he, I think, is trying to do some good things. And even the Republican establishment is out to get him, right? If the Republicans had spent as much time opposing Obamacare as they have railing against Ted Cruz, they'd have been able to defeat the thing. And it just goes to show you, you know, again, I I don't see it as Republican versus Democrat. I see it as them versus us. You know, it's the Republicrats versus the rest of us. Uh, George Carlin put it best, and I'm not going to repeat his words because he's rather profane. <laughs> but nevertheless, he said, you know, that here's the deal. And he was talking about the government. You know, it's a big club, and you ain't part of it. And I think more and more folks need to realize that uh, Mr. Carlin was pretty wise with those words. That's a good lead into a question I want to pass along from Chad Campbell. He's a big part of PlaceToBeNation.com. And uh, you know, he's curious, how can a candidate even present like a third party plan. Now, I mean, there's a lot of libertarians running within the 
Republican Party, but I'd say in a way, whether they're running on the Libertarian Party platform or running as a Libertarian, quote unquote, Libertarian Republican, they're presenting a different plan. And how can someone really break through this two party system? Is there a way that that can even happen? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think as we move forward, what I'm about to say is rather unfortunate. I mean, well, actually, it's tragic. Folks like me have been saying that all this stuff is going to happen for a long time. There is no way out economically, unfortunately. We have $17 trillion in debt. We have hundreds of trillions of dollars of unfunded liability. We are going to see debates about the debt, debates about funding, debates about budget. They're going to continue, and they're going to become much worse as we go forward, because that's the way it is. At some point, we're going to have a currency crisis because the only people that are going to lend us money is our own central bank, the Federal Reserve, which is going to monetize the debt because no foreign country is going to buy the debt anymore. If confidence is lost in the dollar, that is going to shake our economy to its core. The bright side is that offers tremendous opportunities for different viewpoints. My thing is, I think we have to get that education out now. We have to start laying the groundwork because the problem is the bad guys are going to come along and they're going to say, well, you know, the problem was you didn't have me in power. Or the problem was you had that constitution thing. We need to get rid of that. We need to, we need to take all the, you need to give all the power to me. So what I see in the future is I, I see one of two paths. I see a great path that would lead us towards liberty after significant pain, unfortunately, I'm not looking forward to that, but that's the way it is, or I see significant pain, and then we go down an even worse path towards outright dictatorship and tyranny. So I I think that we have to look at doing our job now. That's what's great about people like you trying to get the message out, because hopefully we're planting seeds, and when all this comes to pass, which I think it will, those seeds are going to blossom on the other side. But you know, I think that we're going to have to go through some pain first, and I'm certainly not looking forward to that, and I wouldn't wish that on anybody. You summed it up, and that's why we do what we do at LionsLiberty.com. That's why I do this podcast. That's why I have you on the show, because I'm hoping to get as many new people exposed to some of these ideas so that you know when the S, quote-unquote, does hit the fan, that we can provide at least some of those explanations and hopefully a better path, a better philosophical way to go about things, as opposed to just remaining silent and, uh, you know, letting the next whoever come along and say, no, no, the problem is you had too much freedom before. (laughs) You need more government. That's the problem, not enough. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, it's been through economic calamities that dictators have risen. Actually, a prime example, of course, is Adolf Hitler. I don't know if that's what's going to happen in the U.S. I certainly hope not. But certainly it's not unprecedented in world history. And I just saw – I don't want to say where it was from because I'm not sure. I feel like it was Huffington Post or something like that. But it was a, a picture of Hitler and a headline basically saying – I don't remember the headline. But this is what happens if we default, if we let this thing crash. As if you know, as if the government is not the problem, it's not letting it keep going is the problem. <laughs> and that is so bogus because we are already defaulting. We're defaulting because we're printing money and we're inflating the currency. So – An outright default would be much better because at least it's honest. What they're doing is dishonest. They're printing money, paying the bills with money that's being borrowed from future generations, paying the bills with money that is created out of thin air. And what that does is that destroys the money that's in your wallet right now. 
So we're already defaulting. And that's one of the things that really ticks me off is this idea that, you know, by printing money and by devaluing the currency, that's not a default. It is, and it's much more insidious default than an outright saying, hey, look, we spent way beyond our means. We can't pay this. Why don't we allow things to... Do what the market's going to do as far as purging all the malinvestment, get back to a solid foundation so that we can actually grow again. Instead, we're playing this game of, you know, here's the debt. Okay, we'll just kick the can down the road. We're, next time it'll be, they'll be arguing about, are we going to go over $20 trillion in debt? That's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. Would we run our household like that? Of course not. Why is it that the federal government can be run like that? I mean, you have people in the federal government that can't even balance their own checkbook. And we're talking about the future of our children here, and we entrust that to them. I mean, if they're going to default, why don't we just go ahead and default? Uh, Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you don't have the money to pay your debts or your future liabilities, then you are in default, regardless of what you're doing to skirt around that. What they're talking about is they're talking about raising the limit on a credit card. You know, if you pull a credit card out of your wallet and it's got a $5,000 limit and you can't pay the interest on that anymore because you're exceeding the limit. So, okay, what are you going to do? I'm just going to raise the limit on my credit card. Who do you think is going to finance that? No one in their right mind is going to allow you to raise the limit on your credit card. But that's what the politicians are doing. They are defaulting and they're doing it in the worst possible manner. Now, I just want to fit in a few more questions from our readers real quick. From Brian McWilliams, a contributor over at our site, Lines of Liberty, he's wondering, is libertarianism popular with pro wrestlers? I mean, do you talk about this stuff when you're on the road, or is it more kind of your own thing and you keep to yourself and go on obscure libertarian podcasts and that kind of thing? (laughs) A little bit of both. Of course, a lot of the guys know where I stand on stuff because I'm pretty forthright about it. And we're independent contractors, which means that we have to pay quarterly taxes. We are not subject to income tax withholding. And I think that makes the guys I work with prime targets, fertile soil. Because they got to write the check. They got to feel the heat. They have to write the check. Yeah. And I don't know know how many of our guys, you know, you you roll around to one of those quarterly dates every every three months, everybody's in a bad mood because they just wrote (laughs) a check to the IRS. And then they're thinking, man, I could have used that money myself. So uh, in that respect, I think a lot of the guys are sort of open to these ideas. Now, this is from Trent Seaman, a reader over at Lions Liberty. He's wondering, you know, libertarians, a lot of libertarians, and you you talk about this issue a lot, believe that a commodity-based currency would be better for a society than, you know, the fiat system we have now. Fiat meaning something that's not backed, you know, by anything um, for our new listeners out there. But, you know, there's this big charge that a commodity currency-based system would be detrimental because the economy can't expand. There's just not enough gold anymore or what, or what have you, So, and that this would lead to deflation. So basically the question is, do you think that a commodity currency system would lead to deflation, and would you endorse such a system? Well, that's what the Constitution had in mind. So, yeah, I would endorse such a system. Yeah, there is a problem. We have printed so much money at this point that... No, there's not enough gold in the world. You'd have to revalue gold up to like five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars an ounce. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't have the solution for that. I actually think it should be left up to the market. I agree with F.A. Hayek that I think that the government money should be backed by gold and silver. But I don't think that there should be prohibitions on private money. We see that with Bitcoin. Amazon's now issuing its own currency. And I think that's what would happen is you would see private companies, whether they're banks or retailers, whatever, issuing their own currencies. And you would see competition between currencies. So, again, I I don't have an answer for that. Certainly there are problems with that. 
the idea that, okay, the gold standard caused, say, the Great Depression or it caused depressions throughout history is absolutely nonsense. What happened was the government would go off the gold standard, they would inflate the currency, and then when they tried to go back onto the gold standard, of course you're going to have deflation, or eventually they would just run into a bubble, as we've seen with you know throughout history. So this expansion that people talk about when you're on a fiat currency, you expand, but the bubble always gets burst. And then if you look at the history of the Federal Reserve, Since 1971, when the last vestiges of gold backing were taken away from the dollar, we've had some horrendous bubbles with the NASDAQ bubble and the housing bubble. So the government issuing its own currency backed by anything certainly isn't any sort of panacea. This one's from Michael McDonald over at Place to Be Nation. He hails from Australia, and he's kind of curious if you follow international politics, say if you happen to run for Senate someday or, or end up as the president or something crazy like that. How do you view foreign policy? I do follow, of course, because uh, we travel all over the world. So I do follow foreign politics. And I am of the mind of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington that politically the U.S. should mind its own business and let other nations do their own things as long as you're not making war on us. What did Jefferson say? You know, friendship, friendship and commerce with all nations entangling alliances with none. I think that would have been really good advice. And, you know, a lot of the debt problems that the U.S. faces today are the result of those foreign entanglements that Jefferson warned about. Now, this is just one last question. Now, Glenn, I know I had you on here to talk about libertarianism, Austrian economics, and all that stuff, but I got to toss a bone to my boys over at Place to Be Nation. Jay Hintzy wants to know, (laughs) what is your favorite match? You have one favorite match that stands out in your career. Is your favorite to have either been involved with or maybe your favorite to go back and watch? I've had a lot of these, a lot of great matches, of course, with a lot of great performers. So it's hard for me to just narrow it down to one because I feel like I'm sliding everybody else. It's like when people ask me, who's your favorite guy to, you know, to wrestle? I mean, how do you pick from guys that have been as good as I've had the honor of being in there with? I would have to say I have two favorite matches and favorite moments was my match with The Undertaker, my first match with The Undertaker at WrestleMania 14. And also when I won the WWE Championship, WWF at the time, from Stone Cold Steve Austin at at King of the Ring in Pittsburgh in 1998, because, of course, that was the first time I was world champion, and that was pretty awesome. And for those listening that know what it means, I was marking out crazy when you won that when you won that <laughs> title. Uh, Glenn, thank you so much for joining me here today. Before I let you go, because you just want to, you know, let, where can people find you, either on social media or I know you have your own personal blog. Where can people find your writing and everything you're doing? Yeah, I haven't been doing my blog. It's it's discontinued, and I don't really have a presence on social media. I write a column about every other week on the Daily Caller and also on LewRockwell.com. You can find some of the stuff that I write there as well. Glenn Jacobs, thank you so much for joining us here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Guys, we'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. (laughs) You're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark. 
Claire. All right, guys, we are back. Was thrilled to have Glenn Jacobs on today. He's a guy I've been following his wrestling career for a long time, but I've been following his libertarian writing for the past, you know, three or four years or so. And, you know, he's someone I really wanted to have on, not only because a lot of people know who he is, he would have a big crossover appeal. I was really happy to get into some questions from some of my boys over at Place to Be Nation, as well as questions from, you know, my more <laughs> niche libertarian audience over at Lions of Liberty. But that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to open up. Up this dialogue, these ideas to as many people as possible. That's the whole point of this movement, this libertarian movement. It's all about ideas. It's all about getting them out there in whatever ways we can. And a great way is to have on a guest that a lot of people know about and who's very articulate and knows what he's talking about. Really thrilled to have Glenn on, and well, probably one of my favorite interviews to date. Not to knock anybody else, but hey, I'm a little bit of a fanboy. What are you gonna do? But you know, it's an important lesson. We and Glenn and I were talking off air. He was always, you know, he said he was always kind of the shy one growing up. He was always the quiet one, and I was the same way. I didn't really speak up much in school. You know, when I when I see people from high school ten years later, they're like, "Whoa, you were the, you know, you were the, you barely said anything in school. You were the quiet one." Cool. I was. I, maybe I just didn't have that much to say. But, you know, as we were talking off air, when you get passionate for something, when you get deeply passionate about something, suddenly the shy one becomes the guy you can't shut up. <laughs> and I think that really applies to both Glenn and myself. It's important to keep seizing the day. Look, when you get an opportunity to talk to somebody, it doesn't matter what you're passionate about. This applies to libertarianism. It applies to everything. It applies to anything you're passionate about in life. We're going to do a bigger life lesson here for the wrap-up. If you get an opportunity to do something that you're passionate about, you know, I had to rearrange some things. I had to rethink my schedule to fit Glenn on the show today. But I didn't hesitate. Glenn said, can you do the interview today? I said, yes, I can do it today. Because that's what you got to do, guys. You got to seize a day. You got to carpe that DM, as I believe they said back in Rome a couple thousand years ago. Something like that. It's very important to do, especially when we're talking about the ideas of liberty. We can't be the shy guy forever. We got to grow up. We got to start talking. We got to start speaking out. Maybe for some of you, speaking out is just forwarding the link to this podcast with Glenn Jacobs. Hint, nudge, wink. Maybe for others of you, it's just, you know, a a chat with a friend at the bar or something. It doesn't really matter how you communicate your ideas, how you spread them. The important idea is that you do it, and you do it in whatever way you're most comfortable with. I'm starting to become comfortable with this podcasting format before I was comfortable with writing on the website, on lionsofliberty.com. So make sure you go check us out there. That's right. We're in the plug zone. We are in the plug portion of the podcast where you hear that music from Ron Branch at drawingforliberty.com. Start kicking in and I plug the site. Don't forget to check us out. Lionsofliberty.com. Find us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Facebook. It couldn't be easier. Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Really happy you guys were able to join me today. And before I go, this I saved this for the end for a reason. To test you guys and see if you really made it all the way this far into the podcast. Almost 50 minutes in. The true believers. I have a little contest to announce. Now, you know, a good associate of mine in the Liberty Movement, a man named Matt Blankenship, he's written a book. It is called Meet Ron Paul. It is the Ron Paul biography for youth. It is aimed at a youth audience, hoping to get it in a bunch of schools and libraries to, you know, hopefully help get getting some kids reading the book. 
getting interested in Ron Paul, his campaigns, why he ran for president. It wasn't to be president. I hate to, hate to break it to you. It was to spread a message and spread ideas. And this book is hopefully, you know, will hopefully get to a lot of people and maybe interest them in Ron Paul, interest them, you know, maybe get them down that rabbit hole of liberty, as I discussed earlier with Glenn Jacobs. So I'm going to have a little contest. Matt Blankenship is offering up a free copy of Meet Ron Paul to one of my listeners. Now, here's how you get it. You got to email me. Now, that's Mark. Mark with a C, people. Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. You can email me one of a couple things. You can email me a question for one of my next few guests, and I will ask it here on the podcast. Tomorrow, I got Mark Thornton, Dr. Mark Thornton, senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. He's going to be on to talk about the economics of the drug war. If you have any drug war questions, send that to me. I'm also going to have on next week Chris Rossini, columnist at Economic Policy Journal at Ron Paul Institute and at Lions of Liberty. Our own Chris Rossini is on next week. Week after that, Halloween week, I'm going to have on Walter Block, professor of economics at Loyola University, New Orleans, and uh, one of the leading anarcho-capitalists in the, uh, in the libertarian movement. If you have a question about anarcho-capitalism, Austrian economics, toss it my way and I'll ask it to Walter Block. Now, so you can email me a question or you can sign up for our weekly digest, the upper right-hand corner of the website. There's a little box there. You can just put in your email and every Friday you'll get a little present in your inbox from the Lions of Liberty with all our articles and podcasts for the week. If you don't want to come to us, we'll come to you. It doesn't matter. It's about ideas, and we'll get them to you any way we can, any way you'll have them. And once you get your confirmation email, just forward that to me. Again, Mark, M-A-R-C, at LionsLiberty.com. Everyone that emails me either a question or a confirmation that you're signed up for our digest, I'll put you guys in a raffle. I will draw a random name out, and you will get a free copy of Meet Ron Paul sent to you. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Glenn Jacobs for joining me on the show. And remember, live long and live free.